Today's book is an almost anthropological examination of the nature of corporate scandal. What happens when the wrong person gets a big job? Why is it so tempting to post false profits? How distorting is the prospect of stock market riches? In retrospect, Enron did not conceal their dubious transactions from the investing public, but Enron's brass didn't go out of the way to point them out. But for anyone willing to wade through the company's financial statements, the documents were clear. We are joined today by the brilliant journalist who did just that, who asked the questions others did not, and whose work exposed one of the biggest scams of all time. We welcome author of The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron. Bethany McLean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you today? It's great to have you on the show. Bethany, I, I wear a pin usually to reflect some of the concepts from the book and I have a devil pin that I was going to wear, but I found this one and it says, read and understand the whole document. And I thought that was probably more fitting because that's exactly what you did. I wanted to say my thanks for covering this book because I know you've moved on and you've exposed lots of stuff about the financial crisis, mortgage scandals, fracking. You've moved on so much in the world, but I, I felt this was a story that so many people haven't heard of. And I don't want people to forget there's so many elements of this book that are so important today and have echoes that will go on throughout society. How do you feel about it 20 years on after writing it? It's hard to believe. Well, I, it's not quite 20 years since writing it. It's 20 years since Enron's bankruptcy. It took me and my co-author, Peter Alkind, a couple of years to do the book. So I guess it's about 18 years since the book was published. I think you're absolutely right. I think that Enron was in so many ways a canary in the coal mine, the proverbial canary in the coal mine for so many of the problems we see in at least corporate America today, and so many of the problems that we have seen over the last over the last couple of decades. I'm not sure. It, it's interesting. I don't think, at least in American business circles, that Enron has been forgotten. It's actually the contrary is interesting to me, which is how this story has stood the test of time. And perhaps it's the timing of it that Enron's bankruptcy came right after 9-11. That might be one part of it. I think just as 9-11 showed our country's vulnerability in some ways, so did Enron in a very odd way. It was in the decades leading up to that, we'd all come to believe that people could invest their money in the stock market themselves and put all their money in their company stock. And this was a path to great riches for all of us. And I think Enron's collapse exposed the um, fraudulent nature of that. There's so many threads in here, so many twists and turns in the book, and you did such amazing research for the book. And I didn't know really where to start because it's a mix of so many movies I thought in my head, Wall Street, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Stanford Prison Experiment, all with a backdrop of Stevie V's 1989 classic, Dirty Cash, mixed with uh, Hotel California by the Eagles all playing in the background at a setting of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the, all the imagery that came into mind because it was an absolutely crazy story. But one of the things I really wanted to focus on, and you mentioned this in the book, which is beautiful, is the tragic story of this because it was a story, it's an Icarus type story, a story of ambition that just went wrong. It is in many ways. Enron was not a company that set out to be a fraud. And I think that does tell a larger story of white collar fraud or business gone wrong, which is that it's very, very rare when you see that when you see people deliberately designing something that's going to fail. I, I have very few examples of that happening. Even Bernie Madoff, another famous American fraudster, he's the closest to that, but he was trying to cover up um, past mistakes. And so that's very much the, the, the story of Enron. Jeff Skilling in particular, who was Enron's CEO at the end and ended up serving the longest jail sentence of any of uh, Enron's executives. He was a visionary and many of the great ideas he had could have been world transforming if he had been able to execute on them. For example, Enron Broadband really was Netflix ahead of its time. I felt this as well. There was lots of ambition there. There was lots of principles that we see in innovation now where there was a willingness to try things, a willingness to let people experiment and try new things, a willingness to back them. In many ways, that's what Jeff Skilling brought to the party. But there was a little bit of a mismatch between chaos and order. 
they gave a lot of opportunities for people to explore chaos, but really ignored a lot of cases of the order that's so essential for an organization to survive. That's an interesting way of putting it. I was thinking as you were talking that that Enron and Jeff Skilling really were Mark Zuckerberg's old Mark Zuckerberg's famous saying ahead of its time, move fast and break things. And that was for sure Enron's motto. The chaos versus order um, idea is really interesting because that's true in many ways. The you you can see this through the lens of risk management, which is that Enron was all risk with no management of it, even though Jeff Skilling sold the story as the opposite of that. He sold it as lots of risk, but with very tight risk controls. And in reality the risk controls didn't really exist. And that was part of the problem. The other part of the problem was that Enron wanted the appearance of success, financial success before the reality of it. If they had just said to Wall Street, we're doing all these adventurous things and we're not making money yet, it's possible that like Elon Musk, like Jeff Bezos, Wall Street would have continued to fund them because people believed in Jeff Skilling. He was that charismatic. He had that same sort of incredible charisma that leads Wall Street to give money to money losing businesses. But Jeff didn't want that. He wanted the the appearance of financial success. And so many of Enron's machinations involved making it look like businesses were profitable that that weren't actually. If you think about so many organizations now, I'm talking about startups or scale-ups, they have this illusion of huge success, but they buy a lot of their customers. And Enron were certainly guilty of this, of buying customers, particularly when it came to their retail business, for example, it was early stage what we're seeing today in the VC funds and the startup culture. Right. Yes. In, in many ways. Although I think the key difference is that today's startups, the Theranoses of the world aside, aren't lying about what they're doing. You can look at their numbers and say, ah, and then you can choose whether or not you're going to finance it or whether or not you're going to be part of it. Enron did disclose it. So that's a key difference. You could see in digging through their financial statements that things didn't make sense, that there were lots of causes for concern, but you couldn't see what they were actually doing. You couldn't, they didn't, they didn't lay it out for you and say, aha, this business is actually losing money, but we've used XYZ financial transaction to make it look like it's making money. Make, make, make your choice. Do you want to invest in this or not? And I think it all comes down to disclosure in the end. It's, it's the old adage, right? Transparency. Just let people understand what you're doing and why, and then they can make their own choices. Speaking of transparency, then, I thought it was really interesting, and I loved how you did this. You put Enron's values right up at the start of the book to go look through the lens of these values, through what's going to unfold next. And they're in values at the time where respect, integrity, communication and excellence. And I loved how you strategically placed them right at the start of the book. It said to me that not only do many companies do the same thing, but sometimes we do that ourselves. And we're not true to our values. This was certainly not the case with Enron. It's pretty fantastic, isn't it? The contrast between those values is those stated values in the way Enron actually operated. Someone gave me at some point a bookmark type of card where Enron had printed its values in the backdrop of the the card was all these beautiful flowers, which made it even more fantastic. But yes, I agree with both of those points. I think Enron for me marked the moment where I started to realize the divergence between the oftentimes divergence between a company's stated values and the way that company operates. And I've come to believe it's a little bit like that old famous saying about hotels, the more grand the name of the hotel, the more likely it is to be a complete flea bag. And <laughs> corporations as well, the more they talk about their values, and the more they promote those values, the more likely those values are to be very hollow at, at the end of the day. So I've developed a little bit of cynicism about that. And I suppose per your second point, that that can be true of people as well. The more someone tells you how much they care about certain things about truth, about kindness, uh, about being fair to other people, the more they tell you that, but the more skeptical you should be. Because people who actually operate that way don't need to hit you over the head um, about how they operate that way. They just show you. I love that. There's a great saying that the values are what walks on the halls, not that's on the walls and the halls. And I think that's a lovely way to conceptualize it. I wanted to move on to the origin story. So to go back to the origin story of Enron, and I quote here from the book, transparent, odorless, lighter than air, natural gas composed mostly of methane trapped in underground pockets, 
often beside oil deposits, it was a mere byproduct in the quest for oil, priced so cheaply it wasn't worth laying new pipelines to move it across the country. Instead, natural gas was usually burned off as a waste or was pumped back into the ground to maintain pressure to extract more oil. Despite this, and this is where the origin story was innovative, Ken Lay would discover his destiny. That's it's it's so funny that you say that because the the back to something else I've covered the advent of fracking in the U.S. has almost put natural gas back in that same place today and I'd forgotten those words and they it's interesting that they ring true all these decades later because fracking has once again made natural gas so cheap that it's flared off over the Permian Basin where much of fracking took place anyway that's a that's perhaps an an, an interesting tangent but yeah so can I. Although often minimized next to Jeff Skilling, who really was the creative genius behind the modern Enron, it was Ken Lay that created Enron out of the merger of these two natural gas pipelines. And it was Ken Lay who had the, uh, the, the, the vision in some ways to see that natural gas was not as important as oil, but, but, but an, important, an important product in its, in its own right. And Ken Lay was an interesting character. He was the son of a Baptist preacher who grew up without indoor plumbing. He was really an American success story, um, but with his success came a lot of problems as well. And I, I always think that everybody has their fatal flaws, and some of us just get lucky enough that we're not forced to confront our fatal flaws during our lifetime. But just because events don't force you to confront them doesn't mean you don't have them. Yeah, and he, he struck me, like we said about the chaos and order, that he was all about the chaos and if he believed it, it would happen, you know, and as you say to him, uh, say about him, in the public face he presented, Lay seemed to care deeply about bettering the world. He spent much of his time on philanthropy. In Houston, he was the go-to man for charitable works, raising and giving away millions. He spoke often about corporate values, to your point, if he speaks too much about it, there's something in that. And he was openly religious. Everyone knows that I personally have a very strict code of personal conduct that I live by, he said. And he told that to a religious magazine called The Door. This code, he said, is based on his Christian values. And that just shows that either he's totally oblivious to the damage that he was doing, or he truly believed that they could basically get away with what they were doing, maybe that they could kick the can further down the road, or that they were playing musical chairs and they weren't going to run out of chairs. I think it's almost a step deeper than that. I think that at the heart of many of these stories of business gone wrong is an almost Shakespearean level of self-delusion where people really convince themselves that what they're saying about themselves is themselves is true, even if they're not living that way. And I, I think on some level, Ken Lay deeply believed his own bullshit about himself. And some of that was on full display when when the trial took place over Enron's collapse in, in 2006. And I've come to think of Ken Lay, he was one of the most sanctimonious people I've, I've ever met. And I almost preferred in many ways, Jeff Skilling. I almost prefer someone who's a little more evil and aggressive on the surface, <laughs> whose sanctimony is so thick that you have to kind of claw at it to reveal anything about the underlying character. It's almost it's this thick layer of bullshit on top of a personality. And Ken Lay was, was, was like that. Yeah, and you say of Amir, he had the traits of a politician. He cared deeply about p- appearances. He wanted people to like him. And he avoided the sort of tough decisions that were certain to make others mad. His top executives, like Skilling, understood this about him and viewed him with something akin to contempt. They knew that as long as they steered clear of a few sacred cows, they could do whatever they wanted and Lay would never say no. Even in the early days. So they had this acquisition with Inter North. It was an absolute disaster. Stock was down and they needed a source of fresh profits. This is the please keep making us millions saga that involves Internort's oil trading business, Enron Oil, as it was renamed. And this was the Valhalla scandal. Yeah, and that's it's it's a fascinating canary in the coal mine about both Enron's culture and about who Ken Lay actually was, because instead of living his vision and values at this moment where he's being warned that 
that this oil trading operation in Valhalla is out of control. He desperately wants the profits it appears to be producing. And so he overrules the warnings of his lieutenants who say there's a problem here because he wants he, he wants to keep the profits rolling. And we, my co-author and I, found that an incredibly uh, uh, indicative moment of what would what would later go wrong at, at Enron due to Lay's desire to just push things under the rug that he didn't that he didn't want to see. Borgat was the guy who was involved at the time, and he was like an early version of what later was Andy Fastow, and he was actually sandbagging revenue, paying himself to these sub accounts, uh, including to one account, M Yas. Yes, it was. It was. It it it. It's such an interesting example of that old saying, history may not repeat, but it definitely rhymes. There are so many moments in that Valhalla scandal that would echo um, a decade or so later. Um, as a total aside, I was thinking about it when you said this. I hadn't thought about that episode for a long time, but I remember going to sit in some courthouse on the floor digging through these old files to find some of that information because people hadn't gone back to look at it and all the information at that point you couldn't get it online uh, and you couldn't have it sent to you you had to actually go sit on the floor of the courthouse and go dig through it so anyway it's making me laugh to remember that yeah let, well, let's talk about that because you were you were an early journalist when this happened this was like a, an early role and you got actually lots of support as well and I thought you know, in the interest of this show being an innovation show, that support from those around you to go, you know, she's onto something here and then support you was extremely valuable. Yeah, it 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 was for sure. I mean, I don't want to overstate it. Fortune was a place where where it was pretty laissez-faire. You came up with your ideas and executed them. So I it's not I, I I sort of, I guess I resist in some ways the idea that I had a lot of handholding on the way because I think that's sort of often applied to women. Well, you couldn't have done it if men hadn't been holding your hand along the way. So I want to be clear, that's not, no, that's not really it. Um, but at the same time, when Enron flew executives up to Fortune, uh, I was lucky enough to have two sit in the room with me when I when I when I interviewed Andy Fastow and a couple of other executives and after that meeting my my editor said you know make 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 the story tougher this they didn't answer any of your questions so without fortune support at that moment um, I like to believe I would I would have per persisted anyway but um, but it's hard to know because I can't go back and rewind the clock and so for sure that was meaningful and I it's a little bit of a tangent, but I worry that that same degree of support isn't available in a lot of air in a lot of um, the press now outside of several big institutions that maybe still offer journalists that same degree of that same degree of support. I, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. And let's talk about that fast down meeting, because that was an early indicator that you were onto something here. And in particular, it was what Fasto said when he was leaving the room. Yeah, so it was it was it was funny. It was back in I guess it would have been early two thousand and uh, early two thousand and one, and I had done a lot of the reporting, and I called Enron, sort of expecting them to say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, everybody raises these concerns." You know, here's how we dismiss them, and I I, I sort of thought maybe I wouldn't have a story after I talked to them, and instead. Skilling got very irate on the phone um, and said that I was being unethical because if I had done enough homework to understand what I was talking about, then I wouldn't be asking these questions in the first place. And that's always sort of a scary thing for a journalist to be told because it might be true, right? You could always be missing the point. So it's true in life as well. You could always just have failed to do your homework and be completely adjacent to the to the to the point, not even close to on it, um, or not even close to on it. Anyway, uh, so uh, Jeff then had Andy Fastow and a couple of other executives fly to Fortune. And so we sat in this office for hours. And Fortune, as I mentioned, was pretty laissez-faire. They didn't, no one at Fortune said, you have to have editors sit in on this meeting. I just thought, well, <laughs> at this point, I may have my head so far in what I believe that if, if Andy and the other 
their executives have something valuable to say, I may not be able to hear it because I may be, I'm going to be nervous in this meeting and I may be so intent on defending my point of view that I can't listen to very valid things they have to say. So we, we went through this meeting and at the end of it, Andy looked at, looked at us and said, well, I don't care what you say about Enron, just don't make me look bad. And he was joking, but there's often an element of truth in humor, particularly dark humor like that. People are often telling you something and that it came to be, I came to see it after the fact as a very revealing moment. Let's jump around because there, somebody was asked me recently, you know, what should they do to develop their mind? And I said, right. And they were telling me that, oh, well, I, I'd rather watch uh, bits of YouTube videos or social media clips. And I was like, kind of, you're never going to get deep on anything. And I, 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 I mentioned your book. I was like, for example, you can watch, there's a movie based on your work, or you can read the book. And by reading the book, you'll see the depth of research that was done in this book. And I say that to say, watching this show for an hour is not going to get us near the story and the amount of characters, as you said, the cast of characters that are in that book. But because you mentioned them, Let's focus on fast hour a bit. So we'll jump ahead in the story a bit, and then we come back to when skilling came on to play. Because fast hour was this unbelievable alchemist in the company, and he had created these sub companies within. He was paying each other, but it was all founded on this idea of mark to market accounting. So before we, we get to that, I wanted to pause on your previous point because that is so interesting. I was reading just last night, which is odd, a Joan Didion essay entitled Why I Write, and she was talking about she doesn't know her own mind. And so in order to be able to figure out what she's thinking or what an image means to her, she has to write to tell the story. And with that, I do not mean to compare myself to Joan Didion, certainly not my prose, although I, I wish I wish I wish I could. But I do think for me that's that is why why I write, because I can't understand something, much less challenge it, unless I see it through the lens of trying to tell a narrative. And I think that's true of, of many of us. Forcing yourself to write something out reveals what you understand and the limits of your understanding. It's interesting that Jeff Bezos at Amazon, instead of allowing his employees to do PowerPoint presentations, insists on written documents because it forces a certain kind of clarity of thought. Anyway, I feel very passionately about this, so I had to detour onto. No, uh, I'm I'm so glad you did. Let, let, and let's stay on it for a second because I I'm such an advocate of this. I, I lecture as well in college, and I tell the students why they write because they see it as this. Thing they have to do. And I'm going, no, don't see it that way. See it as a way to formulate your brain, grow your brain. In this lack of attention economy we live in, this is going to be a super skill. I, I agree with that. I, I don't even, it's, it's, it's funny. I'm not naturally a confrontational person. And I don't think that I would be able to take on something like Enron if it weren't for attempting, if it weren't for the process of writing. And what I mean by that is that it's the process of writing that forces me to confront in my own head what I don't understand and haven't thought through, but also what it is that someone's telling me that doesn't make sense. And that's where I find whatever you want to call it, the strength of mind to be able to then confront someone and say, what you said doesn't make sense. But it's only through that, that act of writing that I can, I can sort of pull out the fact that this, 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 this doesn't make sense and then have the, I guess, the substance in order to engage in confrontation. And so I think that, that for people who don't think of themselves as confrontational or don't think of themselves as necessarily wanting to take on difficult conversations, sometimes that act of writing can also give you a backbone because it makes you understand it, it forces you to just to, to see what it is that doesn't make sense this teed you up actually for this book because you wrote that article that that life-changing article for you i i guess which was the how does enron make money Right. So I didn't write that article because I thought, oh, if I write this article, Enron might go bankrupt and I might then have a different career than I would otherwise. <laughs> it's the farthest thing from my, from my thought process at the time. I wrote the article because after I delved into Enron and had done done my homework, I thought, oh, this doesn't make sense. This this these these dots don't don't connect. There are all these things that are that are nonsensical about what the company says and what it what it actually does. And so for me it was just a purely intellectual kind of pursuit in that in that sense I didn't have any grand goals for the article and even when it came out nobody much cared it was six months before Enron's bankruptcy and it was only after the bankruptcy that people looked back and said oh this article 
was on to many of the, the things that eventually brought this company down. But no one cared at the time that it came out. It didn't make a big splash. And I didn't care that it didn't make a big splash. I didn't expect it to. I just thought this was interesting. So it just, it, it also, I think writing can force a certain purity in that way that maybe you do things for the, for the right reasons. No pun intended. It's a really bad pun, but it, but it was unintended. <laughs> it reminds me, we, we had the immense honor on the show to do a seven-part series with the founder of Visa, D. Hawk. He's now 94, and he's a, a remarkable man. And he told me this beautiful thing. He said, life should be considered like an odyssey, not a journey, because a journey is about a destination, while an odyssey is about the joy of the voyage. And I kind of stole that for writing, because I think that's the thing about writing. You actually never know where it's going to bring you. You, you you don't you never know I'm always struck by <laughs> for me it's 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 where it's going to bring me is often the limits of what I understand and so I will often think that I understand something and realize when I sit down to write that my understanding was really superficial because I can't actually explain it and I perhaps that shows my I was a math major in college, and perhaps that shows my inner math major that that for me, a certain kind of logic is really important, and B has to follow A. And if it, <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it doesn't, and I can't connect the dots, um, um, I, I, I know that I can't connect the dots. And I think it's, it's the, that's the formal training of a math major, any kind of logician, that you, that you have this inherent un, uh, sort of, you can't duck from the knowledge that it's not making sense. <laughs> Well, you, you did. So you mentioned about, you know, your prose, your prose is fantastic. I think the book is written so well. It's written almost such like a factual thriller. It's it's a you did a fantastic job and you keep your, your hooked because there's so, so much depth of information there. There's a lot of information to absorb. And it's a long book as well. You don't skimp on the information, which is fantastic. But let, let's get back into the story of, uh, so we were going to talk about Fastow, and then we'll come back and talk about how Skilling got on board. We'll talk about Pi and some, some of the cast of characters, those guys with spikes. Uh, uh, we'll talk about them. I promise not to divert us again for too long, but let me just say on the writing that that definitely was an area in which I had a lot of help. So I don't want to take all... All, all the credit, the original kind of investigative work on Enron was was mine. But I was such a young journalist at that point. I had the luck of working on this book with a co-author, Peter Elkind, and then having both of our mutual editor at Fortune, Joe Nocera, who I've later written books with, and I'm working on a book now with him, um, edit, edited. And if it hadn't been for that, the book would be, we wouldn't be here talking about it. <laughs> well, congrats <laughs> to you both then. Well, sure. well, I did not know how to write a book. So anyway, back to Fasto. <laughs> so back to Fasto. I'll, I'll, I'll tee you up here for Fasto because Fasto was a Star Wars devotee, the Jedi. He was the dark side of the force in some ways. And Skilling, who we'll talk about in a second, he was Skilling CFO. Enron's Wizard of Oz. He is Andrew Fasto. And you say in March 1998, at just 36 years old, Fasto was named CFO of Enron. Once again, Enron had installed the wrong man in the wrong job for the wrong reason. Yeah, that's that's funny. I'd forgotten that line, and it is so true. So I think we write in the book that Jeff Skilling found in Andy Fasto the person who would do what needed to be done and allow Jeff the convenient illusion uh, that he that he needed. And so Fasta was somebody who just innately understood how accounting could be used and misused and how you could create the illusion of, of profits without actually having any profits. And he was willing to play that game. I think in part, when I look back at Andy, I do so with some degree of sympathy because he was young and he desperately wanted to succeed. He'd married into this very wealthy Houston family and was was working at a firm where it was the traders who were really well paid and he thought he was doing he was providing all of these he, he wanted to make money to prove to his in-laws that he too could do it and he was he wanted to be rewarded for the work he thought he was he was he was doing at Enron so yes, he set up all these um, all these crazily named partnerships with often with Star Wars names to and the basic idea behind all of these structures was to allow Enron to use actually perfect actually legal accounting techniques to create the illusion of profits. 
Yeah. So and and what you say here is fascinating. So in finance 101, there are only three ways for companies to fund their growth. They can take on debt, issue stock, or draw from their existing cash flow. Enron had committed to Wall Street that it was going to grow rapidly, that it was an essential element of the Enron story. Again, back to Ken Lay's outward appearances and indeed skillings. But all three of these tactics were ruled out at Enron. The company couldn't put too much debt on its balance sheet because that would hurt its credit rating, nor could it use existing cash flow since Enron didn't really have any cash. And although the equity market was indeed available, Skilling had made it clear that he didn't want to tap it often. And this was the environment in which the dealers were dealing, Ken Lay and Skilling were telling a story to Wall Street, and Fastow was operating. Yes. There's a, um, a playwright named Lucy Preble later did a play about Enron that did quite well in London and didn't work when it came to the U.S. for whatever. But I think she had the imagery of Andy Fastow in the basement sort of frantically bailing. And um, and I think it was her play or maybe I've created maybe it came from somewhere else, but frantically in the basement sort of bailing and creating all the smoke and mirrors that 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 made the whole thing work while everybody up on stage was dancing and pretending in this alternate this alternate reality and yeah it was it was it was fascinating and Andy has later said that he was pushing Ken and Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling to issue more stock and that had Enron issued more stock that actually could have saved the company but neither wanted to wreck the appearance of a successful company and dilute additional dilute existing stockholders and and by doing that, essentially admit that Enron needed money. So they they insisted on continuing the charade even as it got more and more dangerous. And so I I have never known if what Andy is saying is 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 true, but I suspect it was. One of the quotes I took, I love this because you took a quote from post-bankruptcy CFO Stephen Cooper, who summed it up with this line. He said, it looks like some deranged artist went to work one night. <laughs> I thought about these crazy scientists that create some kind of crazy Frankenstein monster. And that's kind of what Andy Fasta had done. And again, bear in mind that he was young, but bear in mind the Wall Street outward appearance that you mentioned there. But he created these sub entities that were all paying each other. And then he started taking a little bit from himself back to your point where he didn't feel that he was fairly paid. And this was again caught on cameras in Wall Street. Yeah, it's the whole the whole thing is really quite crazy. I've said to people after the fact, Enron Fortune had where I worked had 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 called Enron its most innovative company on its most admired list for the seven years I think leading up to Enron's bankruptcy. And I've joked that Enron actually was the most innovative company in corporate America, and and still is. If you go through all of the accounting maneuvers that they used in order to create the appearance of profits, it really is incredible incredibly clever and incredibly complicated. And it is part of the, the the story of Enron that's important to understand, which is that a lot of this was legal. And it's become part of Andy's story after the fact. And this part of his story is 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 true, which is that he he was named Named the CFO of the year, I think, in 1999 because of all because of his expertise with with securitization, and he said he later went to jail for the same thing that he got CFO of the year the year award for, and that 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 part of the story is is true. Enron was an expert at 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 using and abusing the accounting rules. So getting the accountants to sign off and say these structures were legal, um, even even while they were totally misrepresenting financial reality. Um, um, but it's incredibly creative to be able to create the illusion of profits out of thin air, right? An artist would would an artist would be envious. It's it's taking a, a canvas, a blank canvas, or in this case, a black pit of a money losing business and using the, the existing rules to create, a, just like an artist would use paintbrushes, to create out of that this edifice of apparent glorious profitability. So by the late 1990s, Fastow was making upwards of a million dollars in salary plus crazy type of stock options, etc. But he wanted more. And even more than the salary, he felt that he deserved more. So let's share the incredible tale of one of his SPEs, LJM entities that he had multiple ones of LJM and how he told the board that he was engaged in selfless behaviors, risking his own capital and committing his own time all for the good of Enron. 
as a board director at the time, Jerry Meyer remarked during one of the board meetings, gosh, Andy, it sounds like you're the meat in the sandwich. Yeah, so that that's the other part of the story. And it's the part of the story that Andy today doesn't like to talk much about, which is how he used these structures he had set up to to benefit himself as well. And he the the genesis of this is 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 not wrong. He looked at all these incredibly highly compensated people at Enron like the traders and he thought, but I'm the one creating the I'm the one creating the earnings every quarter that we present to Wall Street. And so I'm the one who should be getting paid because they're not creating these these profits we're showing Wall Street. I am. And so he felt very justified in figuring out how to pay himself from these structures he was setting up but but the the board of directors didn't understand what he was didn't understand what he was doing and that's the other half of why he he went to jail was the way in which he stole from Enron through these partnerships in order to put money in his own pocket that for me was probably the the worst sin because I can I can kind of not that I can sympathize I can empathize with a young guy coming up with this kind of outwardly pressured desire to show success and also the culture in which he operated. So let's go back because I said we, we'd introduce skilling again because skilling was an ex-McKinsey and, and lots of McKinsey consultants listen to this show. I'm sorry for saying it, but he was an ex-McKinsey consultant. And as you say, and I quoted you in my weekly article this week, consultants tend to be designers of ditches rather than diggers of ditches. And this goes back to what you said about the chaos and order, about the execution and the profits from the execution. It's a very different thing. This is the environment and that mindset of Jeff Skilling. Yeah, that's that's, that's a really interesting observation. Back back to Andy just for one second, and then we'll come to Jeff Skilling. It's funny as you said that. I thought I almost I almost have more sympathy with the money Andy actually stole than with the structure, the deception inherent in the structures that he set up. And I'm, I we we won't go down that tangent of exploring that the, the the different morality or the different views of morality in in in, in that. But that's that just I had a quick reaction to that. Anyway, so yes, and with uh, apologies to the many wonderful McKinsey people out there, I it is interesting that McKinsey has been on the front lines of much of business gone wrong or rather they haven't been on the front lines of it but their advice has been in the back in the background of of many of these stories and i do think it gets to this key idea of being a designer of ditches versus being a digger of ditches and it was something a former enron executive said to me about jeff i remember we were sitting at a steakhouse in houston when i was doing my reporting on the book and he said that to me and it really made me start thinking because we are coming off the first dot-com boom, boom at the time and we all lionized visionaries we still do today in American business and that ethos has spread all over the world the visionary the visionary the visionary and I thought but what about the people who can actually execute who can actually make an idea come come to fruition aren't they the more valuable ones in this picture What's an idea without without the ability to to execute? And I think broadly speaking, we minimize both the importance and the difficulty of execution in order to celebrate the person who had who had the idea. But it's true that that belief was deeply embedded in Skilling's mindset. He even said at one point that that he didn't think that that anybody who was getting paid for the execution of an, an idea was simply realizing clippings from the greater person's vision and i remember saying well let's take that to a logical extreme do you think then that when somebody came up with the idea for a car they should have been paid all of the i future value of the production of cars on that day because that was the idea and who cares about all the execution he basically said he said, he said, yes. And so that was also the intellectual framework that justified the use and abuse of mark to market accounting at Enron, because mark to market accounting essentially allowed you to realize all the profits from the idea on day one, forget about what happened to the eventual value of that going going down the line. Gilling actually, he reminded me of the great Rita McGrath, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times, brilliant strategist, brilliant thinker, brilliant author. And she talked about how businesses today need to be able to spot patterns in different arenas. So they may have a business model that could work in a different arena, and then they can compete in that arena. Now, this was a skill that Skilling had. He was an ex-McKinsey consultant. He had a great skill of pattern recognition, and he saw one of those patterns, and he liked to go after these ideas, as you said, and he, to him, everything was the idea. But he... To you say, put it simply, he believed that natural gas business 
would get out of its predicament by becoming more like the financial services industry. And he called this idea gas bank. And gas bank actually was part of the entire trading culture that happened in Enron. Let's share that because this is a key part to the story. Yeah, definitely. So it was really Enron and Jeff Skilling that revolutionized the trading of natural gas and Skilling's idea. And he has he did this diagram um, when he was on trial as well. It was basically the parts of a cow and how you could divvy up a natural gas contract instead of just saying, yes, I'll use my pipeline to get you your natural gas here. You could you could you could chop it up into its various component pieces and then trade it just the same way somebody might trade stocks or, or, or bonds. You could trade these different components of a natural gas contract so that you could natural gas could become a financial contract and you could trade it up until the moment where it was due for, for, for delivery. And that would enable people to hedge their risk and and get exactly the pieces of natural gas that they that they needed. And it was a key, it was a really key innovation. And it was also accepted by Wall Street and their banks. They all accepted mark to mark accounting. And this was a way of hiding the true realities. It, well, it, it's. I, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a teeny bit more complicated than that, in that there really is no perfect method of accounting. Accounting is an art, not a science, and it's what makes it so endlessly interesting. So Jeff was able to convince Enron's board, and then convince the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S., that Enron should be able to use mark-to-market accounting. And he was able to convince them because he was right in some ways. He said mark-to-market accounting can offer a better picture of what our business is doing at any moment because we realize the value of a contract all at once, and then we have to reflect the changes in the value of that contract so that you can actually see, are we making money on this contract or are we losing money on this contract? Whereas with historical cost accounting, you would just book it and then you would never be able to see if you were if you were actually making money or losing money and so he he wasn't he wasn't wrong but <laughs> back to our conversation about idea versus execution he was wrong in the execution because there was no there was no established market for much of what enron was doing meaning that it was less marked to market than it was marked to model or as people at Enron said marked to myth. So Enron could make these contracts appear to be whatever it wanted to. And if they needed a little more earnings at the end of a quarter, they could just essentially find a way to mark the contract so that it would look like it was making money even if it was was losing money. These natural gas contracts weren't like stocks like IBM or Amazon today, where you could you know go to the exchange and see what it's worth. They were they were they were they were what's known as illiquid, meaning there wasn't an easy place you could go to get a get a price for any of them. So in some ways, what happened at Enron with mark to market accounting was also the fault of the SEC because after they gave Enron the approval to do this, they never once checked back to see how Enron was actually um, implementing this. So there was this whole like as happened. So much of the time, there was this whole drama and work and run up to getting this approved, and the SEC was all over that. And then they never checked back to see what was what was actually happening. So, so I, I, I always find the discussion about mark to market accounting interesting. Whatever people want it to be inherently bad because it isn't. No system of accounting is inherently bad or inherently good. It's like so many things. It's all in how it's used. Exactly. I was actually, and that's how I thought about it, by the way, and, and how you presented it to us. It's like, you know. Fastow had great skills. Skilling had great skills. Even Ken Lay had great skills, whether you like them or not. But they used them on the wrong side of the force. And it, same at mark-to-market accounting. They just used the. It's like a weapon, giving a weapon to a crazy person, you know. And and as you say in the book, the lunatics take over the asylum in in Enron, and we have what happened. But I wanted to, to connect a few dots because there was a place I was going with this, which is. The chaos and order, the idea versus the execution, the culture. And I'll come back to culture because I really wanted to touch on the culture because you write a bit about that. But then there's the trading wars that happened on the floor and everything became about the trade and everything came about getting the deal done because with mark-to-market accounting, they could actually count them as profits just by getting the deal done. But then on top of that, they were rewarded for getting the deal done. And then they were just like, I don't care who executes that deal. I don't care if it's even done because I'm getting my bonus right now because this is core to how a culture evolves. 
I think that's that's a really good point. I remember talking to a former Enron trader after the company had collapsed, and he said, you know, we got rewarded for creating the appearance of earnings, and it didn't matter if the deal was actually profitable or if it costs cash we were to get it done as long as we could create the appearance of earnings we were rewarded and he said I didn't even think about it at the time that was just how the system worked so that's what I tried to do and he said I look back on this now and think oh my god an entire company full of people who were being rewarded to create the appearance of earnings even if that actually sucked cash out of the company and, and of course we were going to go bankrupt <laughs> that, that was that was the natural evolution of of, of, of that um, of, of, of that culture but I, I found it fascinating that n no one thought of it that way at the time because we all get very enmeshed in the cultures in which we're a part and we don't think, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? We think this is how I get my rewards. And so, yes, that's how it worked. And on top of that, you also emphasize this and, and skilling made this almost uh, a characteristic, a positive characteristic. One of his fav favorite books was Richard Dawkins' the selfish gene. And that was a culture that he propagated and he cultivated within Enron that go for it, go for it. Doesn't matter if you kill your colleague down the hall, as long as you get the deal over the line, as long as you get the share price up, I don't care. Yeah. Skilling had a very um, mercenary view of people's motivations, which is that they were motivated by their own opportunity to make money, not by anything larger. And I think he's both right and wrong about that. I think put into a certain kind of environment, people do become very much about themselves and very much about their own opportunity to to enrich themselves. And it doesn't matter if they trample over somebody else on, on, along the way. But I think people are very environmentally, very susceptible to their environment in that sense. And if people are given the opportunity to care about something larger, they won't be as narrowly selfish. But I'm, that's one of the few optimistic things I'll say about the world. <laughs> and I might be wrong. Just a note on culture, because building on that, so they were rewarded financially, but then there was also the rating system that Skilling brought in. And this was craziness. This was where it became a game of both a popularity contest but also, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you don't support me, you're in trouble because I can write you down and you're gone. Right. It's another, it was called rank and yank at Enron. And the idea was that you had to be, if you were ranked in the bottom 20% of employees, then you would then you would lose your job. And Enron didn't invent this. I think it was used at GE as well for a while. It was certainly used at other companies. I think and I think Jeff Skilling became familiar with it during his time at McKinsey. And it it, it is a continuation on this theme of execution versus idea because the idea you can kind of see that the you can kind of see the appeal of it in a in a in a culture that is supposed to be high performance, which is that no one wants to get dragged down by the bottom twenty percent of employees who who aren't who aren't pulling their weight and who aren't executing. And in theory, in a certain kind of highly compensated organization, y you can see how this rank and yank culture could could make a certain kind of sense. The problem, I think, is twofold. The problem is when it's applied to a broad employee base where people aren't highly compensated and where some people are just in their jobs to do do the basics. And then I think most of us think that people shouldn't be subject to that same threat of, of, of job loss. Um, um, and I think the other the other part of the problem was in how how it was executed. Instead of being executed as, as and, I, and I'm not sure it can be executed well, right? Because all of these job performance ratings become based on what other people say about you. And so it inherently becomes incredibly political. And it certainly was at Enron, where people would basically game the system by figuring out what employees they wanted to protect, who they didn't want to protect, and how before the employee evaluations, if one manager said something good about an employee they wanted to protect, then the other manager would say something good about an employee that person wanted to protect. And so it became a popularity contest, not a performance contest. And I think that inherently is the problem with these sorts of systems. If you could have a really, really objective measure of performance, then maybe maybe, maybe it might work. But the reality is that performance in any kind of corporate American uh, corporate environment is subjective. And so it becomes down to who, who likes who, who wants to protect him. It just gets extremely ugly in its execution. 
that was something that constantly dawned on me throughout the book because we do many shows on culture on this on the show and speaking up actually and we've had the great amy edmondson on the show the mother of the term psychological safety jim detert his book about speaking up to power and they all mention enron and this was a core problem in enron that if i spoke up and i went you know fast out what he's doing there is crazy all of a sudden i might be let go or i might find myself put down to a different part of the organization that i don't want to go to so i leave the organization but the same thing happened with the banks. Now, they were complicit and they were earning from Enron, Arthur Anderson in particular, as we'll talk about. But they also were getting paid and they were earning so much, much individually that it was very difficult to speak up against FASTO. If you did, you found yourself in trouble. You've lost your contract. All of a sudden, you might lose your job because Anderson aren't so happy anymore. Yeah, it's one of the many ways in which Enron is the canary in the coal mine or is more what happened at Enron is indicative of a much bigger problem than Enron itself, per the guests on your show that you just you just mentioned. That's absolutely how it worked at, at Enron, that it was it was on the surface a culture where challenge and and confrontation were rewarded. But in reality, it was structured to be exactly the opposite. And how Enron managed its banking relationships is really indicative of that. So the banks, essentially the analysts who covered Enron stock, had to have buy ratings on Enron stock because if they didn't, they weren't going to get any of Enron's investment banking business. And you had to, if you were one of those banks invest in Andy Fasto's partnerships because if you didn't invest in Andy Fasto's partnerships, then he was also going to make sure that you didn't get any of Enron's investment banking business. And Enron was one of the big, biggest fee payers on, on the street. So you had to get Enron's investment banking business if you wanted to, to do well. And Enron was just an expert at working those forms of those forms of in, in, in intimidation. But I think the larger point back to the the guests that you've had is is as well is it is much more difficult to create a culture where people speak truth to power than it is to say those words and they Maybe this goes back to our points, our points about Enron's code of ethics as, as well. It's much easier to speak nice words than it is to actually put those those sentiments in, into practice. And I, another red flag for me, or another thing that makes me very suspicious, is when I hear a CEO say, "Oh, I just I love it when people tell me I'm wrong, and I create a culture of dissent and challenge." And I think, I bet you don't, because if you <laughs> really did, you wouldn't you wouldn't like it. No one actually really likes it. No. I mean, I get told all the time I'm wrong. I have children and I don't like it. I mean, it, it's just, it's not fun to be told you're wrong. It's much more fun to have somebody say, hey, you're so brilliant. What you just said is so smart. And so the, the overwhelming temptation for anyone in a position of power, whether it's just over your own household or in a position of power um, um, running a company is, is to create a culture where people tell you what you want to hear. And I think you have to guard against that every second of every day and put in place actual mechanisms that force you to be told things you don't want to hear because otherwise the creep, the natural creep of the culture is just going to be the, the, the opposite because people recognize in ways subtle and not subtle that they're going to do better and be liked more if they go with the flow and tell people what they want to be told. Yeah, it's beautifully said, by the way. I, I loved how you phrased that. And it's so true that it, it, it hurts to be told you're wrong because actually you get a it's the equivalent of pain on the brain versus dopamine from cognitive from bias you know i wanted to touch on skilling because skilling there's a there's a term i think it was emerson said that uh, any organization is just a shadow of the leader and the leader's shadow echoes throughout the organization so culture culture was cultivated through the pcrs through the the um the, the the reward structures through the people they hired again so the wrong people they hired again but also skilling worked extremely hard it, you said that in 1990 when he was negotiating his move to enron it was during his wife's time in labor and between contractions he was reviewing reviewing drafts of his employment contract and then in another excerpt you say like its leader and the fasto on this instance the top executives and top executives in global finance all had chips on their shoulders their attitude says a former executive was we're working really hard to fix the mistakes the rest of the company is making they worked terrible hours to anyone who crossed them they were verbally abusive 
one person described theirs as a bully culture. This was certainly the culture. This was the feel you get both with their supporters, which were the banks and the consultants, Anderson, we mentioned, for example, but also with the people they hired. And one of the real bullies in there was Lou Pai. And Pai seems to have got away from, got away with it all. Yes. So it's really funny when you said that. I hadn't, it's been a long time since I wrote this book. And I think when, when I wrote it, well, I don't think, I know when I wrote it, I didn't have children yet. And I must have thought that it was really awful that Skilling was reviewing these drafts of his employment contract while his wife was in labor. And now when you say it, I've I've had two children and I think, well, of course he was. He didn't have to do anything. She was doing all. (laughs) Anyway, it's a a total aside, but I hear that now, and I think, well, well, so what? (laughs) I think, I I think, when if my wife hears this, I I went and got a coffee and came back, and she was in labor. I was like, oh crap! And then I remembered a coffee and a bagel, and she's like, going, and she couldn't eat, and she's like, how how simple, how empathetic of you, Aiden? (laughs) So. I actually have exactly the opposite approach, which is exactly the opposite thought process, which is you should go, go do whatever you want to do. I'm the one who has to do this anyway. Don't let's not pretend that we're both in this together. We're not. So anyway, it, just, it, it made me laugh. But yeah, so Lupai was he, he was another vicious infighter in the Enron power structure and someone who Skilling loved. He saw Lupai as a, one of his guys with spikes, one of these people with an outsized personality characteristics. And he had a really misplaced faith in, in, in Pi. And in, in some ways, I, I, I sometimes think you can see Skilling through one of two lenses with a degree of pity because he repeatedly chose people who are going to betray him in, in, in some ways and who were going to get their own even if that involved essentially screwing Jeff. But in some ways, you can see that he deliberately designed the culture that way in order to get people who would do what he needed while allowing him to ostensibly keep his keep his hands clean. So it's fascinating to kind of flip the lens back and forth on that. But yes, Lupai was actually able to walk away with, from Enron with, I think, more money than anybody because he, he, he divorced his wife in order to marry a stripper with whom he eventually had a child. And when he got divorced, he had to sell all of his Enron shares in order to give half to his, to his wife. And that was when Enron stock was still flying high. And then Lupai left Enron before the collapse. And so when prosecutors came after Enron executives, Lou had been gone for too long to be caught up in the prosecutorial net. And one of the sad truths of prosecutions is that even well-funded prosecutions only have so much, so much money and so much, um, so much attention span. And so they're people who should theoretically have been prosecuted who end up who end up walking away and Lou was one of those people he later became either the largest landowner in Colorado or the largest landowner in Hawaii or maybe both Colorado I think you mentioned yeah you mentioned in the book yeah yeah I think he's back back in Houston now um and I think working with Jeff Skilling again uh starting yet another business so on prosecutions I, I I was telling you I have so many notes from this book I I could never get through it it would be a documentary a, a 24-hour documentary to get through it all. And I thank you for your time. So we've only got about five minutes left. And let's talk about how the House of Cards came tumbling down. The Ponzi scheme was unraveled. Let's talk about that. And then let's let our listeners know, for those who need some closure, some people were prosecuted. Many weren't, like Lou Pai, that we, we, lots of people got away with it. And then maybe we'll finish with how there's still echoes of this around today. The financial crisis was similar, a lot of white collar crime that people got away with and the wrong people got punished. So let's start with that, with the punishment. Who who actually got prosecuted? Because there were some high ranking executives prosecuted. People went to jail. Some people um, lost some members of their, their family during time in jail. Some people died in jail as well. Yeah, so so Enron stands out actually in the annals of corporate wrongdoing because people were prosecuted, not because they they they, they weren't. So Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay were indicted and prosecuted, and both were convicted. Andy Fasto ended up pleading guilty, as did a host of other people who were involved in his his LJM um, his his Star Wars named um, schemes. So a lot of people actually went went to jail in in in. In the case of Enron, and I'm, you know, I, all these years later, I'm somewhat mixed about it, to, to be honest, because I, 
it, because it stands in su- such sharp contrast to other corporate scandals like the financial crisis, for one example, where people who arguably didn't behave any better than the executives at Enron did, um, didn't get prosecuted. And in part, they didn't because the wrongdoing was so widespread and because so many of those people had such close ties to the people in power in, in Washington, whereas Enron was a group of guys down in Houston. And, and so they weren't, they literally weren't our crowd. And I think that partly explains the really aggressive prosecution. And in, in no way is it fair that in, in a relative sense that Jeff Skilling spent, I think, 12 or 13 years in jail during which period of time his son killed himself. It was quite ex- having the full force of the U.S. government come after you and your family is quite an excruciating thing. And while maybe in a, um, Maybe in a, in a, maybe he d- deserved it, but relative to what happened in the financial crisis, the weight of the punishment that he bore was so much more extreme than, than many executives, uh, many executives of the big banks. There were so many other characters in there, Rebecca Mark, John Wing, um, Rich Kinder. And I wonder about those guys. So the, the more high ranking guys and Ken Lay, of course, what happened to those guys? So. Uh, John Wayne did, was way was long gone, as was Rebecca Mark by the time of the bankruptcy. So the Rebecca Mark's story I actually love, um, probably in part because she's a woman, but she was an uh, incredibly high-ranking woman, um, splashed on all the covers of the major business, business magazines during the 1990s. And she lost a power play with Jeff Skilling to become CEO of Enron. And Skilling, to become the chief operating officer of Enron, next in line to become CEO and lay effectively picked Skilling in, instead, and Rebecca was forced out of the company. And because she was forced out of the company, she sold all of her stock and um, had lots of money. And so in some ways, it's actually kind of a, a nice irony. Um, and I don't think that she was, her. the businesses that she ran did not perform well, but I don't think at the time, but I don't think that she was complicit in covering up that 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 performance. That was all the work of, of Anne and Jeff. And they viewed themselves as doing yeoman's work for having to basically hide and cover up the fact that her businesses hadn't performed well. You alluded to this earlier that so many people at Enron had a chip on their shoulder because they thought they were having to compensate for other people's mistakes. And some of those mistakes were Rebecca Marks. And so that's Skilling always believed that the hard, that the, the rough deal he was handled, he was handed was the, the, the failure of her businesses and that he had to figure out how to compensate for that. So anyway, many, many fascinating characters. And Ken Lay, I suppose, the guy who started it all, what about him? So Ken Lay was convicted in the 2006 trial, um, but he died before he um, before he could go to jail. He died just weeks after the trial was concluded, and I think he died in some ways of, of heartbreaking stress. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it, I just wanted to say I, I think the book made me reflect on how people earn money. Like for example, I know a guy who is a builder, and he buys up. No, he's not a friend. <laughs> he buys up lots. And sometimes there'll be like an old person living in that lot and they'll make them offers to leave, et cetera, et cetera. They make it uncomfortable for the person to leave. And it made me think about when I read your book, how we make our money. Are we making money in a life of service, giving back to the universe in some way, or are we taking from it? And it made me really reflect on that. And, and it made me kind of happy with what I do in my own life, thankfully. But it also made me think something else, that while so many people got away with it, did they really? And my faith in the, the universe as it is, is that they don't, that the body keeps the score, that the universe keeps the score, and that there is some type of justice that will be done in some way, some type of karma that will be paid back. And uh, I just, I just felt that really strongly. And I wondered how you felt about that, about those people who do get away with it. Yeah, I I would like to agree with you. And I'd like to believe that none of us ever really get away with anything. We all we all pay a price. But I worry that we pay a price more we're inclined to pay that price. In other words, if our wiring makes us feel guilty and makes us inclined to our wiring or upbringing or whatever it is, makes us inclined to at least on some level recognize that what we're not doing, that what we're doing isn't good, good for the world. And so the more cynical part of my brain thinks that those of us, the ones who pay the price are the ones who are inclined 
pay the price. And that if your wiring is such that you're not capable of feeling remorse about much of anything, then the world may allow you to, to get away with it. But who would want to live like that? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know I agree. I agree. And I often think about the actual term the psychopath, 1% of the population supposedly psychopaths have no empathy. So they would probably be totally oblivious to it altogether. But uh, anyway, it's the, the fateful part of me. I, I think it's so fitting that Enron had a motto of asking why. So the old motto, why, 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 www, when the crooked E was eventually designed by Ogilvy. And yes. it was you who asked why. And I wanted to say you echo so much of the things we talk about on the show. We talk about asking questions. We talk about curiosity, persistence, and you showed all those things. And I wanted to thank you dearly for doing your work because you've done it time and time again. You didn't just give up after this. You've done it again. You're still doing it. And this show wants to thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for those kind words. I have one final quote that I wanted to pull from the book. And there were so many. So this was really difficult. And I hope this is a good one for you. In the public eye, Enron's mission was nothing more than a cover story for a massive fraud. But what brought Enron down was something more complex and more tragic than simple thievery. The tale of Enron is a story of human weakness, of hubris and greed and rampant self-delusion, of ambition run amok, of a grand experiment in the deregulated world, of a business model that didn't work, and of smart people who believed their next gamble would cover their last disaster. And who couldn't admit they were wrong? Bethany, that's my final quote from today. I absolutely thought that encapsulated the elements that I thought were so important from the book that we can control, which is ourselves and how we act and how we don't delude ourselves. But what about you? What's your final message for our audience and all those people watching? I love that quote that you, I love that quote. It's one of the reasons that I've continued in the years since Enron to focus on these stories of business gone wrong is because they aren't simple cases of people who set out to design a fraud and take advantage of other people. They're a Shakespearean in, in nature. They're tales of, of things we all have within us, which is the capacity to delude ourselves, to put ourselves in front of other people, to take advantage of the rules in order to pretend that we're a, that we're doing the right thing because we're obeying the letter of the law rather than rather than the spirit of the of the law it's so much easier to say i'm right than to admit that i that you that you might have been wrong and so it's the endlessly fascinating um, foibles of human nature that keep me that keep me interested in these stories and it's it's been an interesting evolution for me personally because i i started my career in business journalism um, as much more of a mathematician, just interested in numbers and whether numbers added up or didn't add up. And 20 years after Enron, I'm far more interested in the human nature aspects of stories than I am in just the math behind them. So, Author of The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron, Bethany McLean, thank you for joining us. That was fantastic. You are you're a wonderful interviewer, and it's lovely to talk to someone who's done so much homework and put so much thought into things. <laughs> same, same here, by the way. <laughs> there, there's, you're probably the most researched person I've ever met. <laughs> well, thank you. 